It's September 28, 1902. Celebrated French writer Émile Zola and his wife, Alexandrine, walk up the rain-soaked steps to their Parisian townhouse in Rue de Bruxelles. The elderly couple shiver amidst the damp, cold air of the vast mansion. It's an unwelcome contrast to their luxurious country home in Medon, from where they've recently returned after a warm, relaxing summer. The Zolas are greeted happily by their servants, who treat them to a rich and delicious dinner before saying goodnight at around 10 p.m. Emile and Alexandrine sleepily retreat to the luxurious bedroom where a crackling fire burns in the grate and an intense warmth fills the room. But despite this cozy setting, Emile Zola cannot relax. Over the last few years, he's grown increasingly paranoid and fearful for his own life. Zola's publicly liberal politics have triggered waves of aggressive controversy throughout France, and he's haunted by dangerous enemies who will stop at nothing to put him directly in harm's way. So tonight, before settling into bed, he methodically pulls each window firmly to a close, tightly shuts the bedroom door, and locks it with a key. Secured safely in their room with the orange fire dancing in the sooty chimney, Emile and Alexandrine Zola drift off to sleep. But their sleep is far from peaceful. At around 3 a.m., Alexandrine wakes up complaining of a blinding migraine pressing against her eyes, as well as a crippling stomachache. She alerts her husband, who confesses that he too is suffering from a relentless headache and has been kept up all night by strange flu-like symptoms. But as Alexandrine moves to ring the servant's bell for help, Emile stops her. He assures his wife that the two of them are simply suffering from indigestion, probably brought on by the long day of travel and their rich meal. He tells Alexandrine not to disturb the servants and suggests they try to sleep it off instead. But this decision will prove fatal. Unbeknown to the Zolas, they're not suffering from stomach problems at all. In fact, they're slowly being poisoned by the toxic gas rising from their dying fire, carbon monoxide. Over the next few hours, the Zolas drift in and out of an uncomfortable, fitful sleep. The poisonous fumes swirl and circulate around the room, entering into their lungs and gradually intoxicating the sleeping couple. Some reports suggest that Alexandrine wakes again and rushes to the bathroom where she gulps in fresh air from an unlocked window. Emile, however, does not join her. As the sun slowly rises and floods morning light into their bedroom, Emile Zola wakes up. His head is painful, confused, and dizzy. His flu symptoms are stronger than before, and he's overcome with a desperation to fill his lungs with fresh air. Next to him, Alexandrine doesn't wake or even stir. Although Emile most likely presumes she's sleeping peacefully, she is, in fact, unconscious. The carbon monoxide has already entered into her bloodstream and temporarily cut off oxygen to her brain. 
Her body is weakening by the second, but she's still gently breathing and her heart is lightly beating. Emil rises delicately from his bed, each movement a strain on his poisoned muscles. He leans forward to the window where his sanctuary awaits, but it's too late. With a thud, Emil falls to the ground. Aged 62, France's most celebrated writer is dead. The sudden, unexpected passing of Zola sends shockwaves throughout France. Theories and conspiracies evolve that obsessively try to solve the mystery of his death. Then, in 1957, a French newspaper publishes a chilling deathbed confession that raises the alarming possibility that Zola was in fact murdered. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Emile Zola, France's most celebrated yet controversial writer. It's about his early sufferings that went on to influence his political and literary voice. His bold, courageous career as a champion of France's working class. The divisions his opinionated writing caused. It's about a political scandal that divided every aspect of French culture. A society plagued by racism, ancient hierarchies, and injustices. The mysterious death of Emile Zola as he lay sleeping with his wife in his Parisian mansion. And a haunting deathbed confession that raised the possibility of murder 55 years after Zola's untimely death. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Emile Zola is born in Paris, 1840, 
to an Italian engineer and a French seamstress. The Zolas spend just a few years in Paris before migrating south to Aix-en-Provence, where Emile's father is constructing a canal with his own successful company. However, the young family soon encounters tragedy when in 1847, Emile's father suddenly dies. Almost instantly, Emile's widowed mother is surrounded by vulture-like swindlers and frauds who are desperate to take over her late husband's business. Inundated by an array of complicated deals and overwhelmed by the various offers that are thrown her way, Emile's mother eventually surrenders. She mistakenly signs away her late husband's most profitable shares. This is a catastrophic move that devastates Emile Zola and his mother as it thrusts them into the depths of poverty. Zola's childhood is spent scarcely surviving on the edge of society unsure where his next meal will come from, or if he'll even have a home to return to. He witnesses firsthand the cruel injustices of the French legal system as he watches his mother fight day after day in vain to reclaim her rightful shares. This troubled childhood will leave a lasting impression on Zola. It will compel him to defend the working men and women of France for as long as he lives. In 1862, the young Emile Zola's fortune finally changes. Aged just 22 and with limited qualifications, he's hired by a prestigious Parisian publishing firm as a clerk. Zola dives headfirst into his new role and surrounds himself with influential French voices, from contemporary writers and poets to bohemian artists and political critics. He spends all of his free time writing and learning about the social landscape of his country. He pens poetry, political articles, commentaries for magazines, and works of fiction. But Zola's narratives are at odds with the stable society he lives in. Far from the beloved romantic works that have long dominated France, Zola's own words are aggressive, politically fueled, and deeply rooted in bleak realism. He makes no effort to disguise his opinions, however controversial they may be. Zola openly rebukes Napoleon III, criticizes the French government, and amplifies the cracks of social injustice within the country. But this writing begins to attract a mixture of divisive attention from the public. Some readers admire Zola's words and see him as a champion of truth, while others are angered by views they perceive to be troublesome. All of this attention thrusts Emile Zola into the limelight, and almost overnight, he becomes a household name in France. In 1865, he dominates the French literary scene with the publication of his sordid, semi-autobiographical novel, La Confession de Claude. The contentious work goes where no other writer has yet dared, as it explores the taboos within French society. Zola is unafraid to give a voice to a sex worker, to humanize characters suffering in poverty, and to gruesomely highlight the decay and loneliness of Paris. However, perhaps unsurprisingly due to the novel's bleak outlook, it does not receive a warm welcome. Several groups of people find Zola's book hugely problematic. 
wealthy individuals are disgusted by the lives of the lower classes that Zola fictionalizes. They have no interest in stories of poor, working-class families who suffer in an unjust society. Similarly, traditional publicists and critics are horrified by Zola's debut novel. Finding his vivid writing offensive and his love story pornographic, they release only a limited number of copies in France in the hope of reducing the book's social impact. Due to this backlash, the publishing house Zola works at instantly fires him. But it's not just French publicists who take action against Zola. The United States and Great Britain swiftly ban his book from their shops and deny English translations. And the Parisian police are made aware of his works and alerted to his problematic political stance. While still in his early 20s, Emile Zola has already made a collection of influential, powerful enemies. However, Zola is not disheartened by these negative responses to his writing. Instead, he's encouraged by the controversial reception he received and decides to become a full-time writer. He writes several new novels, critical essays, and even authors an epic 20-series book titled Les Rougons Macabres, which he begins in 1871. As a result of these works, Zola's fame grows exponentially, and his name even sparks international recognition. By the mid-1880s, his earnings have surpassed even those of the great Victor Hugo, and he's able to boast three expensive houses in France. Zola has truly left behind the poverty of his childhood and has entered into the comfortable existence of the bourgeoisie. However, alongside this colossal growth of fame also comes significant danger. Zola's novels remain soaked in the unspoken, uncomfortable truths of reality. Themes such as prejudice, alcoholism, violence, privilege, abuses of power, and death haunt every one of his works. So while many of France's working-class men and women look to Zola as a champion of the less fortunate, wealthy individuals do not view him that way. They see him as a dangerous troublemaker, someone whose dark, depressive views risk starting a revolution from within the poorest parts of society. But the literary opponents he faces during his early career are nothing compared to the tribulations that await Émile Zola. Priding himself as a staunch defender of justice, Zola will dive headfirst into the midst of an enormous political scandal. As he navigates through the tumultuous tides of Parisian politics, his life will drastically shift from worldwide fame to mortal danger. It's now 1894, and a whirlwind political scandal is developing that will shake France to its core and drown Émile Zola in dangerous controversy. Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish artillery captain in the French army, has recently been accused of passing military secrets to German forces. Officers discovered a handwritten note in the garbage of a German embassy house in Paris, and its contents revealed top military secrets for the Franco-Prussian War. Perhaps out of humiliation that a traitor has been found in their ranks, or in desperation to quickly find and punish the suspect, army officers have framed Alfred Dreyfus. They claim that his handwriting is similar to that found on the note. However, 
As this is the only piece of evidence officers can give supporting Dreyfus's guilt, many of the public are left to wonder whether he really is the true traitor. It seems far more likely that, as a Jewish person, he's simply an easy target for the army to villainize. You see, many in France during the 19th century considered Jews to be untrustworthy, deceitful, and inferior. It's an ancient and racist stereotype that helps prosecutors illustrate Dreyfus as the guilty traitor. Alfred Dreyfus is dragged to court on December 19, 1894, where an intolerant jury finds him guilty of treason. He's pronounced a traitor to the state and a disgrace to the honorable uniform he wears. In a public ceremony following his guilty verdict, police tear all remnants of Dreyfus's distinguished career from him. They rip the prestigious insignia from his chest and throw it to the angry crowd before breaking his sword in two. As Dreyfus is humiliatingly paraded around the vicious courtroom, his ears ring with the cruel cries from the encircling mob. Death to Judas! Death to the Jew! They scream. However, the life sentence and exile of Dreyfus are only the beginnings of the tumultuous political scandal that will follow. You see, Dreyfus's alleged guilt irreparably splits France in two. On the one hand, there are fierce opponents of Dreyfus who proudly call themselves the anti-Dreyfusards. Thousands of extremist individuals overwhelm France with anti-Semitic propaganda, racial slurs, and powerful rumors that all French Jews are traitors. They take over newspapers and journals in order to deliberately manipulate public opinion against Dreyfus. As a result, the toxic tide of anti-Semitism floods France with a force of a tsunami. However, there are also thousands of supporters who rally for the innocence of Alfred Dreyfus. They correctly believe he's been framed due to his Jewish religion. They scrutinize the tenuous evidence presented against him and, in 1896, even discover the true traitor. Among these supporters is none other than Emile Zola. Unable to resist the opportunity to fight for justice, Zola throws himself headfirst into the controversial political scandal surrounding Dreyfus. But any involvement in this polarizing case is extremely dangerous. Friendships are destroyed over a single conversation. Attacks are made on prominent individuals from either side, and death threats are readily exchanged between opposing parties. Zola's own infamous involvement will inundate him with millions more enemies and place both his and his wife's lives in mortal danger. January 13th, 1898. As the men and women of Paris wake up to the cold, frosty air of the city, a surprising new headline grips them. On the front page of the liberal newspaper, Le Roi, published in unmissable, bold, black letters, is the title, J'accuse. The heading precedes a lengthy, passionate article written by Emile Zola about the Dreyfus affair. Every single thing about the article is daring and revolutionary. Zola's writing spans the length and width of the entire front page. His accusatory diatribe uses over 4,000 words, and he even addresses it to the President of the Republic of France. 
Zola boldly proclaims Dreyfus's innocence and illustrates him as a victim of injustice. He calls the court's decision a crime against society and vehemently undermines the French legal system by stating that the channels of justice have failed in their duty to speak the truth. But Zola doesn't stop there. He condemns five top army generals of being accomplices in this epic miscarriage of justice. He also accuses each supposed handwriting expert of submitting fraudulent and deceitful analyses. And he goes so far as to accuse the war office of conducting an abominable campaign to irreversibly smear the reputation of Dreyfus and manipulate public opinion to their favor. Needless to say, Zola's long list of enemies is swelling by the minute. He's well aware that the authorities will attempt to strike back against his article and persecute his right to free speech. So he concludes Jacques with a defiant challenge, writing, Let them dare, then, to bring me before a court of law and let the inquiry take place in broad daylight. I am waiting. If Emile Zola had enemies before, they are nothing compared to what he receives after writing and publishing Jacques. The reception to his article is monumental. It reawakens public attention to the Dreyfus affair and reopens the chasms of division in French society. Supporters of Dreyfus hail Zola as a champion of truth, a speaker of justice, someone who's finally prepared to fight against the rule of the state. But the anti-Dreyfusards are horrified and angered by Zola's powerful words. Thousands of individuals from all areas of society view him as a disloyal, revolutionary traitor to the state. From lowly laborers and struggling students to government officials and army generals, many people with anti-Semitic tendencies see Zola as a villain. They also consider him to be a criminal. On February 7, 1898, Zola is taken to court where he undergoes a public trial for libel. Despite his impassioned arguments for justice and his pleas for France to uphold its revolutionary mandate of liberty, equality, and fraternity, xenophobia gets the better of the judge and the jury. Zola is found guilty of libel due to the damning words he wrote in Jacques. He's fined 3,000 francs, stripped from his membership in the prestigious Legion of Honor, and sentenced to one year in prison. But unwilling to spend time in jail and desperate to avoid the vicious lynch mobs who villainize his name, Zola takes matters into his own hands. On the night following his conviction, he flees to England under an alias and, carrying just a nightshirt and newspaper, begins his life of voluntary exile. But in Paris, anti-Semitic extremists wait with bated breath for his return when they can finally serve their own twisted versions of justice. And in 1902, just three years after Zola sets foot back on French soil, his death warrant will be signed. September 29th, 1902, Rue de Bruxelles, Paris. It's 9.30 a.m. on a chilly, damp fall morning 
and servants in Emil Zola's house are growing worried. They haven't heard a sound from either of their employers today, Emile or Alexandrine, which is unusual considering both are typically early risers. A group of servants huddle around the locked door to the master bedroom, but even though they repeatedly knock, call out their names, and strain their ears for any sound in reply, an eerie silence is all that greets them. It doesn't take them long to realize that something is seriously wrong. So with a deafening sound of cracking wood, they force the bedroom door open and tumble through into the large room. However, the strange scene that meets their eyes does very little to calm the servants' mounting nerves. Emile Zola lays rigidly on the wooden floor, his body sprawled out beneath the closed window. A few meters behind him, in their four-poster bed, Alexandrine lies perfectly still, unconscious and unmoving. Is it possible that both of the Zolas are dead? Doctors are immediately called and within minutes they're rushed into the panic-stricken mansion of France's great writer. Two medical professionals tend to Emile as his cold body remains motionless where he fell. For over 20 minutes, they attempt to artificially resuscitate the elderly man, pleading his heart to beat and for blood to revisit his pale face. But all of their efforts are futile, and Emile Zola is pronounced dead at the scene. His wife, Alexandrine, enjoys a more fortunate fate as doctors are able to quickly revive her and bring her round to consciousness. In a dazed, tired state, she's taken to an expensive Parisian clinic to recover. It will be here where she'll reveal what happened on that fatal night of her husband's death. News of Emile Zola's untimely passing sends shockwaves of grief throughout France. Supporters and enemies alike hear Alexandrine's version of the story as she describes the strange events from that night. She explains how she and her husband lit a smokeless fire in their bedroom, suffered an uncomfortable and fitful sleep plagued by illness, and the next day, she awoke to be told that her husband was dead. As Alexandrine was the only person with Emile that night, police trust her story and work with her to establish a cause of death. Almost instantly, authorities assure the public that Zola's death is not suspicious. They theorize that the writer either died from accidental asphyxiation or unknown pre-existing medical conditions. They speculate that a faulty pipe may have leaked toxic gases into the bedroom and obstructed Emile's airway. Police offer the idea that Emile perhaps suffered from some sort of undiagnosed disease, explaining why he died while Alexandrine survived. Interestingly though, the police continually stress that there was no foul play involved. But for an internationally famous man with millions of extremist enemies who frequently threatened him with death, many people question the information offered by the police. What, or even who, really killed Emile Zola? One individual who has serious questions over the nature of Emile Zola's death is Jeanne Roseau, Zola's former mistress and mother of his two children. Jeanne becomes obsessed by the notion that her lover was murdered as he slept. With so much controversy over his politically-fueled writing, 
combined with his bold stance in the Dreyfus affair, Jean finds it impossible to believe that her lover's death was accidental. It's perhaps due to the ongoing pressure from Jean, or out of desperation to quell the rising rumors of murder, that police launch an official investigation into Zola's death just months after having ruled it unsuspicious. At first, the inquiry appears to be thorough and accurate as police go to extreme lengths when examining the death scene. Guinea pigs are locked into Zola's bedroom while a smokeless fire burns steadily in the grate. All conditions are exactly as they were when the Zolas retired to bed that fateful night. But when police return to retrieve the guinea pigs, nothing amiss or wrong is found with them. The animals are perfectly healthy and display no symptoms of sickness. The test seems to rule out the popular theory that Zola suffered carbon monoxide poisoning. Next, officials dismantle the flue, inspect the chimney, and perform air tests within the bedroom. But once again, nothing suspicious is found. All that the experts can suggest is that the chimney perhaps needed cleaning to prevent a buildup of soot and smoke. The results of these various tests should comfort mourners and members of the public. They should reassure them that Zola's death was simply an inevitable course of nature. But strangely, the findings from the investigation are never made public. Police instead keep information surrounding Zola's death vague and are reluctant to commit to one specific cause. While the coroner rules that Zola died from natural causes, other investigators blame his death on suffocation from a faulty pipe. The lack of unified explanation makes suspicions around Zola's death grow. Is it possible that the police perhaps know something they don't want anyone else to find out? The investigation into Emile Zola's death is soon closed, and the public have no choice but to accept the limited explanations they're fed and try to move on. Zola's body rests in an open casket inside his Parisian mansion, while mourners visit to pay their respects. But it won't be long until a sudden attack brings up fresh controversy around Zola and reminds France of the brutal, vicious extreme enemies who haunted the esteemed writer. It's now October 5th, 1902. Emile Zola's body is drawn through the wintry streets of Paris as thousands of mourners wipe tears from their streaming eyes for the man they viewed as their champion of justice. Zola's national fame is so great by now that it's estimated over 50,000 individuals have braved the cold weather to pay their respects. But of course, for a man who lived his life in controversy, scandal is never far from his name. Contrary to Alexandrine's wishes that her husband be remembered only for his literary pursuits, everyone's attention is drawn instead to his political involvements. Anatole France, a future Nobel Prize winner, eulogizes Zola as a moment in the history of the human conscience. But although Zola's funeral passes in peace, chaos awaits. On June 4th, 1908, Zola's remains are moved to the prestigious site of the Panthéon, to be buried next to his fellow literary heroes, Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas. Controversially, 
Alfred Dreyfus attends this honorable ceremony. Although the former captain has recently been pardoned for the wrongful charges against his name, he continues to be a divisive and polarizing figure throughout France. As Dreyfus walks between the pews to pay his respects to Zola, an unnamed man rises from his seat and shoots twice at him. The shots echo through the depressed streets of Paris and Dreyfus falls to the ground. Fortunately, the bullet wounds are superficial and only graze his arm. However, the attack boils up a fresh atmosphere of anti-Semitism and reminds the mourners just how dangerous the anti-Dreyfusats can be. If a man is still angry enough to shoot Dreyfus 24 years after the infamous affair and cause alarm during the burial of Emile Zola's body, then surely it's plausible that one of these extremists was capable of murdering Zola in 1902. Despite this relocation to the Panthéon, Zola's reputation remains controversial. In 1927, over 20 years after his intriguing death, a deathbed confession services that will undermine the initial police investigation and reignite the possibility that Emile Zola was murdered. It's now 1927, and in Paris, an elderly chimney sweep named Henri Bourronfoss is dying. Before Bourronfoss allows himself to give in to the seething pain racking his frail body, he has a burning confession to make. He's asked Pierre Hacquin, a pharmacist from Normandy, to sit with him and record the incriminating words he's about to speak. Aware that death is just around the corner, Bouron Foss gets straight to the point of his confession. I'm going to tell you how Zola died, Bouron Foss announces to Hacquin. Zola has been purposefully suffocated. It was me who clogged the chimney of his apartment. Bouron Foss explains that in his youth, he was an avid and extreme anti-Dilefusard, caught up in the mob mentality that had consumed Paris during the Dreyfus affair. Bouron Foss developed an overpowering hatred for Emile Zola. It was therefore Bouron Foss's good fortune and Zola's fateful bad luck when he was contracted to repair the roof of Zola's Parisian neighbor in September 1902. According to Bouron Foss's dying words, he and a few unnamed associates deliberately blocked the chimney of Zola's house using a mat just nights before he and his wife returned from Medan. With an obstacle covering the top of the chimney, the toxic carbon monoxide fumes had nowhere to escape, and so encircled Zola's bedroom as the couple slept, poisoning Emile. And so unravels the mysterious murder of the chimney sweep, who claims to have killed one of France's greatest writers. But Bouronfoss's deathbed confession does not stop there. Before Hacquin can interrupt the dying man with questions, Bouronfoss voluntarily explains how he escaped police suspicion. On the morning of September 29, 1902, Bouronfoss claims to have walked across the roof of Zola's house and simply removed the mat he had used to block the chimney. With so much toing and froing as medical professionals attempted to revive Zola, no one paid any attention to the action that was unraveling on the roof. 
This explains why all of the air tests came back clear, how the guinea pig survived unharmed, and why police ruled out carbon monoxide poisoning as the cause of death. However, although this intriguing deathbed confession should make Hackwin a rich and famous man, for some strange reason, he doesn't publish it. It isn't released to the public for another 26 years. Did Bourinfoss perhaps regret confessing on his deathbed and swear Hackwin to secrecy? Or did someone else have something to gain from keeping Zola's death a secret? Bourinfoss's confession is finally published in 1953. In a letter written to the national newspaper, Liberation, Hackwin reveals the deathbed confession he was given. The letter is just part of a new investigation into Zola's death, titled... Zola, was he murdered? However, as the confession finally reaches public ears over 50 years after Emile Zola's death, its validity is almost impossible to prove. On the one hand, Buran Foss's confession may have credit as he had both the motive and opportunity for murder. You see, when he was a young man aged just 25, Buran Foss was employed as a bodyguard for a French anti-Semitic organization surrounded by racist, intolerant, and xenophobic views, which he presumably shared, Bourinfoss quickly became a fierce anti-Dreyfusard. This constant participation in anti-Semitism would have stimulated a fierce hatred towards Emile Zola. Meanwhile, the opportunity to punish his enemy was handed to Bourinfoss in September 1902. The commission to work on the house right next door to Zola's own home provided Bourinfoss with the perfect chance to carry out an assassination. It's entirely plausible that Bourinfoss crossed over to the adjoining roof, discreetly covered the chimney of Zola's house, and then removed the mat the next day. These traces of credibility add fuel to the popular conspiracy that Emile Zola was murdered in his sleep by one of his numerous enemies. However, there are also drawbacks and questions surrounding Bourinfoss's confession. If he had truly wanted to assassinate Zola, it's likely that Bourinfoss would have chosen a very different method to do so. You see, carbon monoxide poisoning from the flames of a fire is an extremely inaccurate method of murder. Proven by Alexandrine's survival as she slept in the same room as her husband that night, yet lived to tell the tale. There's no way that Bourinfoss could have been certain that his plan would work. So, did he perhaps just want to injure Zola and cause mild discomfort? Was it simply a prank that had gone wrong? What's more, there are no witnesses to back up Bourinfoss's claim. His alleged associates do not come forward to share in the anti-Dreyfusade victory of Zola's death, and it cannot even be confirmed whether Bourinfoss ever worked on the roof next door. Could it therefore be possible that the chimney sweep was simply an anti-Semitic who wanted to take credit for Zola's death? Of course, the burning question remains as to why Bourinfoss's confession was released over 50 years after Emile Zola's death. The delay in releasing this confession ensures that no one can credibly prove or disprove it, destining it to simply become one of many conspiracy theories. The truth of Emile Zola's untimely death may never be discovered. 
Was he murdered in his sleep by a killer chimney sweep? Did he simply die of natural causes? Or is there another explanation to his sudden death during that fateful September night of 1902? Not even Zola himself would have known the answers to these questions. Yet it's perhaps fitting that his death continues to spark controversy. As a man who lived his life surrounded by dispute and division, it seems inevitably characteristic that even his death is no different. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Hannah Quick, a landlord in 1980s Brooklyn whose property was gutted in a fire that claimed the lives of a mother and her five children. The three men she claimed to have seen running from her townhouse were convicted of starting the fire and causing their deaths. Even as they were led away to start long prison sentences, they maintained their innocence. But Hannah Quick had secrets. Ones she kept from the police. Ones she wouldn't reveal until just before she died. Secrets that, if true, could reignite the case decades later. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising producer, Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.